was raised as a very devout Muslim in the United States. And the fact of the matter was, every time I connected with the Christian, I realized that they didn't know why they believed what they believed. The Christians who were around me wouldn't share the gospel with me, and I never realized why. I concluded either they didn't believe the gospel was true, or if they did believe it, they didn't care if I went to hell. It is a pain to know that there are people who do not know Jesus. It is a greater pain to know that oftentimes Jesus and Christianity is being distorted. Who told you you can't accomplish your dreams? I think around the world, they know the phrase, the American dream. Your destiny is calling out. It's time to start living large. We are exporting the very worst of what Christianity has to offer. I declare you debt free today, saith God so that many people harden their heart against a Jesus, a Christ, a Christianity, that is not the true version of it. It's as easy to get healed as it is to get forgiven. I live in Texas. We are considered the buckle on the Bible belt. Around here, everybody thinks they're Christian simply because they live in a conservative region of the nation. You can grow up in the church hear a gospel about freedom and still work your tail off trying to maintain the image that you're a good person. I had my Jesus on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights at youth group and the rest of the week I was chasing after worldly things that made me happy. And I saw nothing to like about God. You have an increasing number of people that were raised in churches that didn't take the gospel seriously or took it for granted. Wow, like Jesus died for my sins? That's so convenient for me. I don't have to go to hell, but I'm going to go do my own thing. <laughs> and surprise, surprise, they don't know what they believe or why they believe it. We're assuming that people understand the gospel. I think it was Christian Smith who said that what we're seeing nowadays in the American church is the rise of what he calls moralistic, therapeutic deism. How to make people moral. You know, I look like this perfect golden child, but I was so dead. A place to go to feel better about themselves. I'm asking you to feel good about who you are. And so as a result, we're seeing a church in America that's becoming ultimately Christless. So if we're following the gospel thinking it's all about us, we've missed Jesus' words entirely. The fact that we were raised Christian doesn't make us a Christian. We have to have a supernatural rebirth. I went from somebody who hated Jesus to a guy that loved Jesus and spent all his time at church. Why? When you come in contact with him, you change. Like there's nothing that I could have done to make this happen. Like he literally gave me a new heart. And when the heart changes, everything changes. If this is true, this story is so captivating. All I knew is that I had severely overlooked something. I opened that word and nothing was ever the same. There was a time in my life that I thought the goal of preaching was to get people to do what they don't want to do, which, which by the way, is a terrible profession. You know, that my goal is to somehow arm twist or browbeat people into doing what they don't want to do. I don't believe that anymore. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. One of the biggest turning points for me happened while I was a youth pastor at a church. And it's kind of a sad thing to look back, like I'm a pastor, I'm teaching the Bible, but I didn't know what it meant to teach the gospel in the Bible because I wasn't 
really telling people the good news about Jesus. I was telling them to be a passionate, zealous, committed, radical Christian. I was very passionate. In a lot of ways, my church put emphasis on things that scripture didn't put emphasis on. I don't think Jesus was the center or the gospel was the center. It was more so what we do, what we can do. And so as a new believer, I never really knew that the gospel was a big deal. And I was realizing how Christless preaching was. And I, I can remember a sermon from the Sermon on the Mount, and it was 10 tips on how to be sexually pure. And I remember that day, like that being a turning point in my journey to say, I never want to be a pastor or preacher like that. <laughs> like, what are you doing to earn God's favor? Have you tithed enough? Have you given enough? Have you prayed long enough? Have you laid hands on anybody in the last week? Have you spoken tongues? If not, then you're not a believer. In fact, I think the thing most common among unbelievers when they think about Christianity is they think about Christian moralism. What we believe about sex, what we believe about money, what we believe about them. The most common misperception about what Christianity is, is it some sort of moral betterment program. And it is about being good. And that's what all religions are about anyway. Be a good person. Yeah, the right thing I don't There's few things as damning and devastating to the human spirit than, than that message. We want to, first of all, say there's nothing wrong with preaching morality. We certainly don't want to preach the opposite, immorality. But moralistic preaching, or sometimes identified as moralism, is preaching the commands of Scripture or the morals of Scripture and nothing else. Just pretty much saying to people, you be a good person and God will love you for that. And while we do not intend it, that is not just a sub-Christian message, it's actually an anti-Christian message. I was hearing from the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus, here's how not to be sexually immoral. But then I'm thinking about the passage in the Sermon on the Mount, and the whole point is to try and tell us you're not sexually moral. Your righteousness should exceed that of the Pharisees. And you think that it's about keeping these lists of rules and the Ten Commandments. Well, I say to you, and I, he, he takes it to the heart, and he says, if you have lust in your heart, then you're falling way short. And he, he concludes that section in Matthew 5 by saying, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. But that's not the sermon that was preached. It was, you can be pure. You can be sexually uh, moral. And here's your 10 tips. You're giving them a goal that they'll never be able to attain, period. The messages that just say be good, damn people. To their pride or to despair, there are really only two possible human responses. One response to a be good message is, been there, done that, checked off that box. The person will believe they can attain it, be the Pharisee, um, and work and work and work and work, or be the Mormon, <laughs> work and work, or the Muslim or the Jehovah's Witness, all of them. <laughs> you'll, you'll try to earn salvation by trying to be a good person. Why do I have to, you know, repent? Why do I have to ask for forgiveness if you're not making mistakes? I work hard, I'm an honorable person. Jesus is walking down the road uh, one day and a young man comes up to him and says, uh, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it sounds like a very safe question. It's actually a landmine. What must I do 
to inherit eternal life? It, already it's about performance. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, Jesus responds with great wisdom. He says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And then he says, you know the commandments. But Joy, then what, but what is the standard of goodness? Be good that, to your neighbor, don't cheat okay, on your husband, but, don't steal. But in the, don't lie, don't steal. Gives them the list of the commands. But in the Bible, God's standard is the Ten Commandments. I'm good on that too. And the young man immediately says, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus just said, only God is good. And two seconds later, what does the young man say? Me too. In which case he gives himself the status and the stature of God. It's just pure pride. And by the way, breaks the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods. You've never told a lie before? Ever? Oh, what, is that one of the commandments? It's the commandment. Never mind. Nine. Jesus is like, okay, sell everything you have. Dude walks away. So you're not good. <laughs> you can't be good. And Jesus already lays out the foundation that only God is good because he defines what goodness truly is. I try and lead a life where I don't have to ask God for forgiveness. If you have a proud heart, and most people are very proud of heart, and the way to find that out, let's just say, do you think you're a good person? All in all, I'm a good person. I don't, I don't really lie, cheat, or steal, so. You don't lie? You know what? Never mind. I'll take that back. I don't. I don't tell huge lies. I tell white lies. I believe I'm a good person. How about you? You do? Yeah. How many lies have you told in your whole life? Um, I can't count them. <laughs> you ever stolen something? Stolen something before? Yes, I have. I think the misunderstanding is that God's law was given as a standard for us to live by. Well, try and live by it. Well, the law's a mirror. It's just simply meant to reflect what God thinks, who God is, how he wants you to live. And then you get to look in the mirror and you get to go, how do I fit that standard? You know, love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself because that's the essence of the law. We can't do it. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Accidentally, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get rid of that. You've done it? Yes. It's called blasphemy, it's very serious. Uh, I've never known anybody in my whole life that has looked in a mirror and said, I have something in my teeth and then taken the mirror off the wall and tried to pick their teeth with it. Now, Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever done that? Yes. I'm not going to lie, I did. And you don't take the law and then try to fix yourself with it. You take the law and say, I'm in need of help because something is wrong. If we don't understand who God is, then the gospel does not make much sense. You see, the great issue here is that God is holy and God is just. And that man is unholy. And man is not just, man is unrighteous, man is a sinner. So Eduardo, I'm not judging you, but you've just told me you're a lying thief, a blasphemer, and an adulterer at heart. And that's only four of the Ten Commandments. We can look at others and go, well, I'm not as bad as them. And I didn't do all of that, but so I'm not that bad. But that's a lie. You're bad compared to Christ, who is altogether lovely, who is holy. We pale in comparison. So a person needs to really take a good look at Jesus, and then you know who you are. My problem of sin goes far beyond my actions. It goes to who I am as a person. I have a nature of sin. That is my essence. 
Uh, the human heart is predisposed right now to love everything else besides God, uh, to love self more than God, to love wrong more than right. The heart is totally opposed to God, conceived in iniquity, born in sin. 99.9% of people are not bad people. They may make poor choices, but deep down, they've got a good heart. You and I are naturally rebels to God. So how do you fix the broken part of the human heart that loves the wrong things? The Bible says that we are dead in trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2 verse 1 immediately comes to mind. To be dead in sin means that we are physically alive, but that we are morally unable to respond to God. What can a dead man do? And the gospel not only addresses my behavior, my actions, it addresses who I am by promising to change me at the core basic level of personhood. Therefore, God must perform a resurrection. So if God judges you by the Ten Commandments on Judgment Day, you're going to be innocent or guilty? By the guidelines, I'm going to be guilty. Heaven or hell? I'm assuming hell. In that case, everyone will be a bad person. Yeah, that's what the Bible says. It says there's none good because good in God's book means morally perfect. So if all we did say to people is be good, the other human response is, wait, what does it mean to be good? Does it mean to be as holy as God is holy? Never lie, never be selfish, never in any way do things that are contrary to God's law? Oh my, I'm, I'm in despair now. What you're doing is you're revealing in the hearts of your people their shortcomings and failures. So to just leave it in their hands and their effort puts a weight on them they can't bear up under. I felt like I was walking on eggshells all the time because it felt as if at any moment I can go to hell because I'm not doing enough. Um, and that's where you see a lot of people who grew up in churches where the gospel might not have been really fleshed out, where they become atheists because it's like, I can't do enough to please them anyway, so why? Why trust him? Why believe in him? Um, I'm still the same person. I'm still wicked. I'm still sinful. Well, what if I have failed sexually? If I'm a, a man sitting in the church service at that moment, I have no hope as I walk out. I'm just told, here's 10 ways that you should try harder. We're damning people to those twin possibilities of pride on the one hand or despair on the other. And this is why the gospel is so important, because the gospel comes in in the middle of both of those and says, yeah, you're right. You aren't good enough on the one hand, but Jesus was good for you. How can sinful man be reconciled to a just God whose justice demands that they be punished? Do you know what God did for guilty sinners so he wouldn't have to go to hell? Any idea? The answer is found in the person of Jesus Christ, the historical person, God intervening into human history. And this Jesus of Nazareth lived the perfect life that you and I could never live, have never lived. And then he goes to a cross. We owed a debt to God because of our sin. And that debt was suffering eternal punishment. But on the cross, God himself, he took our place bore our sin and suffered the wrath of God that we deserve. He extinguished it. He put it away. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Then he ascended up into heaven. And this Jesus, the son of God, sat down at the right hand of God. 
And now the Bible teaches that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father except through him, that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And if you repent and trust alone in Jesus as your Savior, God will remit your sins, dismiss your case, and grant you the everlasting life as a gift, not because you're good, but because he's rich in mercy. In many ways, the defining doctrine of true biblical Christianity is justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Justification is God declaring us righteous even though we are guilty of sin. We see in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works so that no man may boast. And so this is the great dividing line between biblical Christianity during the Reformation and the Roman Catholic religion. The official position of the Roman Catholic Church on justification is that they believe that you are justified by faith plus works. In fact, at the Council of Trent, which people refer to as the Counter-Reformation, they actually issued an anathema. If anybody believes that they are justified by faith alone, they are condemned under the anathema of the Council of Trent. And so the Roman Catholic Church actively was opposing and cursing those who were holding a biblical gospel. It is often called the plus religion because Catholicism teaches that you are saved by faith plus works, by grace plus merit, by Christ plus other mediators, according to scripture plus tradition, and for the glory of God, as well as the glory of Mary and other saints. When you look at the Roman Catholic plan of salvation, it is a salvation of works and sacraments. In the Roman Catholic plan of salvation, baptism cleanses an infant from original sin. And that is the sacrament of regeneration as well as justification. That it starts them off on this plan, on this track. Along the way, however, they can commit these small sins, venial sins, which plunges them back down. And heaven forbid they commit a mortal sin, which knocks them completely off the plan of salvation. And he must now receive sacraments. He must confess his sins to a priest, which is the sacrament of penance. And then he must be re-justified by doing good works, by doing penance. And once he is re-justified, and then he must maintain his salvation through sacraments. And if, in the end, if they have enough people praying for them, and if they do enough time in purgatory, they might possibly get to heaven. How they get to heaven is based on what they do rather than what Christ has done. But the Bible teaches there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the work has been done. He saves you totally, completely, perfectly. And even though, yes, we sin and can repent, the sacrifice of Christ has paid for those sins. And so there is assurance that he has saved you, he has plucked you out of the world, you're in the palm of his hand, and nobody can pluck you out of his hand. And so that's why the reformers cried the five solas, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. That message has always found opposition. And the Jerusalem Council, that we read about in the book of Acts, actually addressed this very same issue. The rabbis and the Judaizers 
were saying to the Christians that God will accept you by his grace through faith and your keeping of the ceremonial laws, being circumcised, washing your hands, keeping the food laws. And the entire church agreed, as summarized by uh, the Apostle Peter's statement, that that is not the good news. That's not the gospel. Jesus didn't come to make salvation possible for those who do their part. He came to accomplish it and to give it freely to all of his people. The question is, well, how do we know if faith is real, if there's no works? Doesn't the Bible say faith without works is dead? And so don't we have to do works to be saved? Isn't that the argument? Is that what we have to be doing? But there's two understandings of that, and one's biblical, one's not. So the Roman Catholic view of salvation, and really any works-based system of salvation, takes works and puts it at the root and says that works plus your faith in Jesus is what produces salvation. But the Bible teaches that it's not the root, it's actually the fruit, that your faith alone in Jesus, that is what saves. And then a, a life that has been saved, a sanctified, regenerated heart, produces fruit, the fruit of good works. And so you know a person's been saved because of their fruit, but the fruit is not the reason they're saved. They're saved by God by grace through faith in Christ. You see, the Christian is the only person, the true Christian, who can say that they're going to heaven without being self-righteous. Why? In other religions, how do you get to heaven? You get to heaven by being good, by earning it. In Christianity, you're not reconciled to God through your own virtue or merit, but you're reconciled to God through the virtue and merit of his son. Does that make sense? That makes absolute sense. So, Augusto, if you were to die today, how old are you? 19. If you were to die at 19 and God gave you justice, you'd end up in hell. There are two things you have to do to be saved. You've got to repent and trust in Christ. When are you going to do that? Almost immediately. You serious? Yeah, I'm serious. Euangelion, the Greek word gospel, is taken from the good news that a runner would bring as a messenger coming to announce in the capital that victory had been achieved on the battlefield. And everyone would cheer. It would transform the lives of everybody in the city to know that they hadn't lost the war, they had won the war. But of course, they weren't the ones out there in, in, in the trenches. In the same way, Jesus says, I have accomplished salvation, not come help me, save the world, but I have accomplished this. The law basically is due. The gospel basically is done. The gospel isn't what would Jesus do, now go and do that. The gospel is what has Jesus done, now believe that. This distinction between the law and the gospel really is the most important thing to remember, and it's one of the things that we're forgetting. That pattern of God always making sure that we know that relationship comes before obedience, that we do not have a relationship with him because we obey. We obey because he has made a relationship with us. That is made clear over and over again in the Bible. God says before he ever tells his people what the commands are, I'm the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now obey me. Now, it's critical we understand he didn't say, you obey me and I'll let you out of Egypt. No, he said, I have redeemed you. Now here's the safe path for you to walk on. It's the order not just of the Old Testament passages, 
I mean, all the epistles of the New Testament basically follow that same order. In general, the first half of the epistles of Paul, of John, of Peter kind of say, here's what God has done in Christ. Here's how he has saved you. The last half of the epistles, now here's what you should do in response. The moral commands that we should obey are like the railroad tracks for the train that as the train's going, this is the way that the train's supposed to go. But the gospel is the engine and the fuel that makes the train actually move. And so it does a Christian no good and it does a non-Christian no good to just continue telling them, hey, here's the tracks, now go. But if they have no fuel, if they have no engine, they're just gonna be a train stuck. And there's a lot of Christians I think today that are just trains sitting on tracks being told, go forward, but they're not being given an engine or any fuel to move them forward. There are some pastors out there that assume, I think incorrectly, but understandably, that everyone in their church understands the gospel. I remember years ago, I was asked to address a group, a large group, but they told me that they were mainly Christians. And they said, well, what are you going to preach on? And I said, well, I thought about preaching on the gospel. And they said, but we just told you that these, most of these people, we know them as very devout and sincere Christians. And I said, well, first of all, I appreciate that, but I can never assume that everyone there is truly Christian or has come to a biblical understanding of the gospel. That's number one. Number two, the gospel is not just for lost people. The gospel is for Christians. God being three in one, eternally existing, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, in his great love, he, he made creation to share his love with. Um, not that he needed to, but he wanted to. And in that, he created us. And in creating us, we fell into sin. And sin is something that separates us from God. It's something that is not of God, something that's against God. On Saturday nights during the um, summer, we host worship nights at our house, usually starting at about 6.30. You know, we'll play basketball, we'll throw the football frisbee around, and we'll just talk and hang out outside. Um, and then we'll gather in the living room, and there'll be a time of worship. Jesus made it in our community, we've made it a practice that Every week we try to have meetings where the, the gospel is at least presented one time. And Jesus being fully man, fully God, walked on this earth and lived a life without sin, without blemish, um, and lived the life that we were called to live and lived the life that we should have lived. And in our place, he died the death that we deserve. Three days later, he rose again after that death on the cross. And one of the things we do stress is that even believers need it, even people that hear it a hundred times a month, still need that. We do have hope because any kind of judgment um, from that sin has been dealt with by God. The gospel is not something that you graduate from. It's not something that you ever move on from. The gospel is central. We're constantly prone to forget the gospel. We're prone to forget uh, who he is, who we're not, what he did for us. Preaching the gospel all the time, every week, means that from Genesis to Revelation, you realize the whole Bible is one unfolding story of God's love and saving grace and mercy towards sinners in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 5 that the whole Bible is about him. 
And Luke records for us that Jesus taught them all the things concerning himself from the law, the prophets, and the writings, which were the threefold way of describing the whole Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament. Now, either he was a megalomaniac, or he is who he said he was. And the whole Bible is about Jesus. Well, I don't know about you, but if I'm a follower of Jesus, I want to follow Jesus' understanding of the Old Testament. Therefore, if we explain any text in isolation from him, we fail to say the very thing that he said it's about. He said it's about him. If you're preaching about Daniel and it's dare to be a Daniel, it's not about Jesus. If you're preaching the book of Revelation and it's about Israel and Russia, then it's not about Jesus. Though Jesus isn't the content of the whole Bible, he's the center of it all. In other words, not every story, every little thing is about Jesus or can be an analogy for him, and yet it all points towards him and his work. He's the pinnacle. So the message of the Bible is that God will save his people. So any point you drop into Habakkuk or 2 Timothy, you know, any point you drop, drop into Isaiah or Deuteronomy, it's going to be connected somehow to this main trunk road of the good news of what God is doing in our world. Whether you start in Genesis 3 and you talk about God making a promise that he would crush the serpent through the seed of the woman, well, what's the rest of the book of Genesis? It's the story of that seed through the woman. And that's why so many people get bogged down by genealogies. And they're like, what are these genealogies about? This is why the New Testament opens with a genealogy and showing you that the seed has come in the person of Jesus. And so if you can't see the cross in the story of Joseph telling you what you meant for evil, God meant for good. I mean, that's the cross right there in a metaphor. Well, then you're, you're really missing the whole unity of the Bible. And I think that's probably, if you wanted to put it, what we're denying, what's one of our problems, is that we're missing that the Bible was written by one author and that therefore the author has a unified story that he's telling. Even though there's different human authors, they're all inspired by the Holy Spirit. God is not a supporting actor in my life movie. The Bible's not about you. I have been cast as a player in his unfolding story of redemption. And we've got that reversed today. Here's what you, you'll keep infusing yourself into the stories of the Bible like you're the hero. And so a way of reading the Bible that always makes man the hero and not and the acts of God the hero. I, I think if you mess that up, then you're reading the Bible entirely wrong because the, the Bible wants to consistently get your eyes off of you and onto a God who is able. So it's not you that are able, it's God that's able. And, and so the, I think David and Goliath, you're right, it's just a perfect story for it. That anytime you hear the David and Goliath story, you're hearing about how you're David. In order for David to become David, he needed Saul. Stop despising Saul. You need Saul. You need people to hate on you. You need the people to tear you up. Thank God for Saul, because if you got a Saul, that makes you David. I want to be straight. I love you enough to be straight. You're not David.
So I'm David and the Goliath is my debt or it's my difficult marriage or it's my boss at work. We're going to keep our distance from our enemy and sling our stones until every Goliath falls down in our life. I'm going to grab the stone of faith and I'm going to sling it at my giant of this boss at work and I'm going to slay and I'm going to hold up his head. You're going to defeat that giant. Yes, that obstacle is big, but you have greatness in you. And that would be a very narcissistic way to, to read the Bible. But in a Christ-centered hermeneutic, we're going to approach the Bible and go, okay, what's going on in this very true story? Um, it, it appears here that there's something that is terrifying and, and that on the surface it looks like it cannot be killed. And yet it, it's overcome by this man who, by faith, killed what couldn't be killed and and now we're on to a threat right like like who what's more undefeatable than sin and death what david was doing was enacting the justice of god on the enemies of god for the victory and salvation of god's people who did absolutely nothing but be afraid and terrified to approach the enemies of god you know who conquers our giants Christ conquers our giants. It's not me that conquers my giant. Like the great giant of my life, sin and death, cannot be conquered by me picking up a stone of faith and throwing it, but by the finished work of Christ who conquered death with a single shot. David was one of the men in the Bible that, that God said he was a man after my own heart. What a tremendous way of describing King David. Yet here's also a man who committed murder so that he can sleep with that man's wife. He's a murderer, he's an adulterer. Abraham, the father of our faith, we always you know, say, Abraham's a guy that lied and threw his wife under the bus, not once, but twice. I and mean, this is not a husband that you wanna emulate. Do you see that the Bible takes care to tar virtually every biblical figure but one? <laughs> it's, it's almost important to remember that the Old Testament is an Eastern book more than it is a Western book. It's not just dealing linear, going A, B, C, D. Rather, who Christ is, what he must do, is being defined by what he is not in the Old Testament. And you, know, you take a figure like Samson in the Bible. You know, there was a man who had great strength and great cleverness. And uh, if you know the story, when Samson had long hair, he was strong. When he had short hair, he was weak. Now, what's the message there? Well, it's obvious we should have long hair, so then we'll be strong. Well, no, that's not the message. The message was, no matter how strong or clever you are, you are not your own savior. You are not your own redeemer. That's a dead end if you're going to depend on your own strength and your own wisdom. Think about the way a, an Eastern thinker sometimes represents truth. is not saying this thought leads to that thought leads to that thought, but rather speaking around a truth so that you get the truth. The people of God are given the law, but they break the law. Sacrifices are provided, but the priests who begin to offer them become themselves malevolent and not helping. Then the judges say, well, just do what's right in your own eyes. That doesn't work. All right, pick a king. You're tall, as strong, as handsome as guy. Well, that king becomes selfish. Well, we'll give prophets to the kings, and the kings will learn what to do from the prophets. Sounds great, except the people kill the prophets. And you begin to understand that through the course of millennia, God is saying, we need a better lawkeeper. We need a better judge, better sacrifice, better prophet, better priest, better king. Not this, not this, not this, not this, not this, but this.
the gospel, the more we know about what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ, the great cost of our atonement, what the atonement has purchased for us, the more we understand that as Christians, the more we're going to grow in sanctification, the more we're going to grow in worship, devotion, delight in the person of God. What is the only reason that sin has any power in your life? The answer is because you love it. If the sin did not attract you, it would have no power. The reason that we sin is because we love it. And as hard as that is to hear, it's actually a wonderful understanding because it means the power over that sin is a greater love. The goal of a lecture is that you leave with information. The goal of a uh, motivational speech is that you leave with action steps. The goal of a, a gospel sermon, the goal of teaching the Bible, is that you leave worshiping. If people and churches are out of control morally, it's probably that they don't understand the gospel. What the Bible is actually teaching is that the goal of preaching is to have people profoundly, deeply love the Savior so that there is a consequence in our hearts and lives. Jesus said that in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And what makes us want to do that is a heart that loves the Savior because we've perceived how great is his love for us. Because when people are filled up with love for Christ, the love for the world is pushed out of their hearts and the power of Christ is now in their lives. So as long as we sin, unless we have a, a doctrine of sinless perfection and that you no longer sin anymore, which I think that's been known for quite some time as a heresy, then as long as you're a sinner, you need the gospel. If you sinned yesterday, then you need the gospel today. Because the gospel produces faith, and faith produces love, and love produces the fruit of good works. I think the gospel should be preached in every sermon. If I've got somebody here that I've been trying to get here for three years, they're my next door neighbor, and the guy preaching today is just talking about the joys of motherhood. You know, I'm, I'm in favor of motherhood. But if that's all this visitor that I bring hears, that's just a shame. If your sermon could be preached in a Jewish synagogue, then it's not a Christian sermon. Foremost in my life, whenever I have a chance to preach, it, it's first of all going to be the gospel and then build upon that central message. Because if someone doesn't have a right view of the gospel, they don't have a right view about anything. So a type of reading the Bible where I'm always the hero, I'm never the Pharisee, I'm never the scared Israelites, I'm never the ones who are gonna worship a golden calf just a few weeks after I was led through the Red Sea, is a misreading of scripture that makes man the champion and not God and it's unhealthy and it's broken and it leads to man trying to manipulate and control God like he was a genie in a lamp. We need to check ourselves and check our heart. Oftentimes we find ourselves sitting in pews or even coming to church in order to get something from Jesus but not get Jesus himself. So I was raised um, in a non-Christian home and I always sort of felt a pull towards religion. I was always interested in it. Um, when we moved to the South, there was certainly a lot of um, Christian homes, a lot of friends of mine who went to church. 
And so I definitely knew about the gospel. I was interested in it, but I didn't really understand it. Um, and as I got older, I really started to question God and how he could send people to hell. That was sort of the big hang-up that I had with religion. I really humanized God. And I would say to people, you know, if I couldn't send even my biggest enemy, you know, to burn in hell for all eternity, how could a God who loves people so much do something like that? I would have called myself maybe spiritual. You know, I thought that all of the religions were right. Um, I kind of felt that there was a way for all of them to kind of overlap and work together. And um, as I met Russell, he was atheist, and, and I think that really helped to maybe take me even further away from Christianity. So before I got sick, um, I was somebody who probably spent most of their time worrying about how healthy my diet was. Russell and I had just been married for a year. We were happy. Um, I was focused on working out. Exercise was a big part of our relationship. I actually was able to do CrossFit all during my pregnancy. I was running when I went into labor. I felt like I had done everything right. Um, I had a career in pharmaceutical sales that was important to me. And then when I got sick, um, you know, everything changed. Today is your day for a miracle. Is it God's will to heal? If so, is it his will to heal me? The answer is yes and yes. When I'm praying for somebody, the first thing that has to happen is I have to be absolutely convinced that it's God's will to heal people every time. The Word of Faith movement is the term that's given to a movement that's more commonly known as the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, name and claim it gospel, this teaching that it is always God's will for a Christian to be wealthy. It's always God's will for a Christian to be physically healed. We should never be sick. Believe me when I tell you, I never get sick. I was as sick as a sick dog with a, with a cold. Yeah, yeah, I get sick too. Or if we do get sick, we can be healed as long as we have enough faith. We can attract positive things to ourselves through positive thinking. And Norman Vincent Peale, the great Norman Vincent Peale was my pastor. The power of positive thinking. And the Word of Faith movement is led by people such as Benny Hinn, world's most famous faith healer, Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, Joseph Prince, T.D. Jakes, Andrew Womack. These are just some of the more prominent leaders of the movement. Uh, but what has happened is that the United States of America has created this false theology and has now exported it to the rest of the world to the point that now the face of Christianity in most of the world today is word of faith. The idea, simply put, is that if you, if you love Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, you can generally expect health, wealth, and happiness. When I went into labor, um, everything started to go wrong. Um, my delivery went really fast. Um, I found out later that it, that was because I had a connective tissue disease, and that's one of the signs of it. Uh, I was diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos uh, syndrome, which is a really rare genetic disorder that affects the connective tissue and the collagen throughout your body. So it affects everyone in different ways, but it can affect uh, pretty much everybody's system. After the delivery, I was left with a fractured pelvis um, and a lot of internal injuries that caused me a lot of pain. And um, 
My doctor told me that right away I would need surgery to repair my pelvis and I basically had two choices. We could have one more child or we could go ahead and, and have that surgery. We had always wanted to have um, four kids, that was sort of the number that we wanted, um, but we had to change that and we decided that we would have two. We still weren't going to church. We still didn't believe in God. Um, I still just kind of struggled my way through with our daughter until I could get pregnant with our son. When he was born early, um, in all honesty, I was just grateful that the pregnancy was over, the pain was over, uh, and that I could move forward in scheduling that surgery that was going to give me my life back. I went into that thinking, this surgery will cure me. When this is over, I will get right back to my old life. Everything will be the same. I deserve to be healed. I deserve to have no pain. I deserve my old life back. I didn't do anything wrong. You know, God wants you healthy. I believe in healing and divine healing, of course. And I go to the world and travel and preach the gospel. And I, I grew up in the Word of Faith movement, in the prosperity gospel I worked for my uncle Benny Hinn, who's a famous faith healer and pretty well known. When I worked with my family, I was a catcher. And so my job was to look sharp in a suit and be on stage when people were being prayed for. Uh, but what was going through my mind at the time at every crusade was that this was real, that people were really being touched, that my uncle was anointed. I would lift my hands and I would speak in tongues and I would pray in the spirit, praying that God would touch them, that he would fill them, that he would heal them, etc. And to Jesus be the praise. Today, I hold no positions that are in agreement with my family, the word of faith theology or the prosperity gospel. And the reason for that is I've come to an understanding of the true gospel. I didn't grow up in a believing household. Great grandmother, grandmother, uncle, mom, uh, all drug addicts, father, drug addict, drug dealer. When I was about 12, I started using drugs and getting involved with gangs and violence and drug dealing. And, and then when I was 18, the Lord saved me. And basically, man, I was preaching the gospel in, in the same projects where I used to sell dope. And I met a guy and he said, do you understand that Bible you're carrying around? And I told him that I didn't and that nobody had taken the time to help me understand it. And he pulled me aside and said that he would. And I had no idea that what he was teaching me was a prosperity gospel. I actually grew up with no background in church. When I fell into the Word of Faith Prosperity churches, I thought that that was the truth. And so I fully depended on my pastor for feeding that to me. I guess I just had this knowledge that God existed, but I didn't have an understanding of who God was. I had no clue what the gospel was. I never really heard it. As far as I knew, he died and rose again so that I could have a prosperous life. You know, Jesus died that we might live an abundant life. And so that's what it was. Thanks. Thanks for my ticket, you know, so. I was the benefactor of the theology that we taught, which primarily makes Jesus your magic genie in a sense. And if you rub him right, if you do all the right things, he will bless you, you will have everything you want. I view the Holy Spirit like the genie from Aladdin. I had a totally false understanding of God. And so when God didn't do what I felt that he was supposed to do, I was very upset with him. I was very upset. By the time I was finishing high school, all I really wanted to do was play baseball. 
naturally being a word of faith kid, for me, if you really want God to bless you, you got to do something for him. And so I sowed a seed before ever going to college, after graduating high school. And my seed that was sown was working for Uncle Benny. I was going to serve the holy man. I was going to be on his ministry team. I was going to put God first because I've got dreams. I've got money I want to make. I got houses I want to buy. I got baseball that I want to play. Then what you do is you create a God who only wants to give you all the desires of your heart. God Almighty is about to give you the desires of your heart. The true gospel says, well, no, those desires that we're born with, that those aren't good desires at all, that our hearts are corrupt. Our hearts are desperately deceitful and wicked. Fast forward to about my second to last year of college, and I've got a coach who is a disciple-making coach. He's a wonderful man. His main goal was to develop us as men and as Christian men. And so one day before a game, he stands there and says, gentlemen, God is sovereign. Don't worry about the scouts in the stands. Don't worry about all that you know the future holds. God is sovereign. And then he quotes a, a famous proverb that says, the king's heart is like water in the channels of the hand of the Lord. He turns them wherever he wishes. He says, God controls kings. God controls your future. God controls the scouts. He's sovereign. Don't worry about it. And as a word of faith prosperity kid, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, mm, how do I get on the good side of sovereignty? I need the sovereignty thing to go to work for me. But that was a massive seed that was planted in my life because it was the opposite of everything I had ever been taught. Because you've been taught things like God's in control. The Bible doesn't teach that. But it was completely biblical. God was sovereign and nothing I say or do was going to change that. The prosperity gospel is really the worst manifestation of what some might call the seeker sensitive movement or the attractional church movement. And, and you have to be careful about this because the church should be attractive. But we have to ask why is it attractive and to whom is it attractive? The church should be attractive because God's people have a hunger and a thirst and a desire for his word being taught and preached. And that is a profoundly attractive experience and a profoundly attractive thing for someone who is converted, who God has changed their heart and they desire those things. But the attractional church in the negative sense are those churches that seek to make worship and make participation in the church attractive to the unconverted heart, to the non-believer. So therefore, the sermon becomes less about opening up God's word and letting it breathe and more about entertaining that audience. So they can present messages which downplay uncomfortable parts of the truth. It can simply be a God is love message where you're careful not to define God very biblically or love very biblically make it sound like there's a force that approves of whatever you and your innermost being want. Well, that's nothing like God. That's actually a lot more like Satan. There's an assumption that unbelievers are seeking after God, when in reality, they're seeking after a God of their own choosing. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, is really, really clear that there would be a group of people who, wanting to have their ears tickled, would accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. The real Jesus comes and he says, I don't want to give you the desires of your heart. I want to reorient the desires of your heart. Uh, the prosperity gospel appeals to two of the most basic and universal of all human desires, to be wealthy and never to be sick. Nobody wants to die. Nobody wants to be sick. And nobody wants to be poor. 
All the things that Jesus says we have to be willing to set aside to follow him. They take all of those things and they make that the attraction of the gospel. I don't know what you feel about the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but I'll tell you what I feel about it. Hatred. I'm all alone, no friends, no fellowship, no church. And I click on this video and there's this old man with gray hair and he is preaching like I've never heard anybody preach before, handling the word of God in a way that I've never seen. And I love it and I just want more of it. And so I continue to watch video after video after video. And finally I come to a sermon jam. And it's being exported from this country to Africa and Asia, selling a bill of goods to the poorest of the poor. Believe this message, your pigs won't die. Your wife won't have miscarriages. You have rings on your fingers and coats on your back. That's coming out of America. And he begins to talk about this crap called gospel. People that ought to be giving our money and our time and our lives instead selling them a bunch of crap called gospel. And here's the reason it is so horrible. When was the last time that any American, African, Asian ever said, Jesus is all satisfying because you drove a BMW. Never. And I just thought, this guy doesn't know anything. I thought this guy was a man. This guy doesn't know anything. He's an idiot. They'll say, Jesus give you that? Yeah. Well, I'll take Jesus. That's idolatry. That's not the gospel. The Jesus who's going to help me pay my taxes at the end of the year, the Jesus who's going to correct my wife's genetic disorder, I'll take that Jesus. That Jesus sounds great. But what that is is idolatry. It's an elevation of the gift above the giver. The prosperity gospel is exactly like marrying someone for their money. Are you coming to God for God? Or are you coming to God so that you can ultimately get what your heart's truly after and that's something else? My wife married me when I was dirt poor living in a cockroach infested apartment i know she loves me for me man it only had to go uphill from there the bible is not against wealth it's not against happiness it's really how do we view those things it is true that god does want us to be happy but that happiness is not the way the 21st century american culture would define happiness if you're talking to someone who's already achieved success they've had the cars uh, the beautiful wife, the children, they have everything that the world says you should have to be happy, and yet there's something missing. I was very successful in the business world. I began as a rocket scientist down in Cape Kennedy, Florida. Later on, I was recruited to a computer firm in Dallas. Everything I touched turned to gold. Everything that I had desired and that, that I acquired, it had an ending to it. Even when I bought my first uh, real expensive sports car, it wore off. I was thinking of the next car. And really, there was an emptiness inside of me in spite of everything that I had accumulated. And so when I met Jesus Christ, I found something that wouldn't end. The ultimate gift of the gospel is not all of these other things. It, it's God himself. God is both the giver and the gift. And I think this is what happens in our pulpit Sunday after Sunday. Christ is hidden from the American gospel. And essentially, I think that is the problem because the gospel is not a plan, it's a person. 
the call of the gospel is a call to follow Christ. And Christ made that call. He said, follow me. Paul makes the call in the same way, saying, we preach Christ and him crucified. The center of the message of both Jesus and Paul was Christ himself, Christ his work, and the response that says, I will submit, I will follow after Christ. It is a living, vibrant relationship with a person that literally transforms your life. One of the misconceptions that we have is thinking that salvation is the gospel when really salvation is the result of the gospel. And so the good news of the gospel is not only do you escape eternal judgment, that's a fringe benefit. You get to be restored to God. You get to know God as a person. You get to fall in love with him and experience his love for you. And that is what satisfies the heart. And then the most beautiful message and truth of the gospel is that through Jesus, we get God. Through Jesus, we get to be satisfied in him. But I was a true sheep. I had really been converted. And I loved God and I loved his word. And I was just confused. And the only thing I knew was, whatever this guy is doing with the Bible, I want more of that. So I decided to just kind of avoid his other stuff about the prosperity gospel. But eventually, uh, I couldn't avoid it. Uh, once I became more grounded in the scriptures and began to see the truth and beauty of the biblical gospel, the prosperity gospel had to bow the knee. I fell into a discipleship course at my old church. The curriculum was by a third party organization. And that's where I first heard the gospel. And from that program, I began to realize that my church wasn't teaching the gospel, wasn't preaching the gospel at all. And it was also a prosperity word of faith church. And so soon after that, I left that church. People always ask me how I first became interested in this subject matter, this movement. And it goes back to when I was a teenager. I was born with cerebral palsy, and as a teenager, when I was 16 years old, a neighbor of mine came up to me, and he said, Justin, God has spoken to me, and he's told me that he's going to heal you as long as you have enough faith. And at age 16, this is something that really resonated with me because I wanted to be able to do the things that my friends were doing. I wanted to be able to run and to play football and, and all these things that I thought were so important at that age. And he told me about a faith healer named Nora Lamb, who was coming to my then hometown of Vicksburg, Mississippi. And a long story short, went to this meeting and obviously I was not healed. Mrs. Lamb saw us coming and all of a sudden she decided it was time for her to go. And so she tried to make her exit and my father saw what was happening. And so he briskly walked up to her and stopped her. And so this was in front of everyone, and Mrs. Lamb pretty much had to turn around. She came back, and she dipped her finger in that oil. She touched me on the head, and I actually fell backwards. Now, looking back on that, I know now that there was nothing spiritual about that at all. It's just that we had seen everyone else do it. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right, baby. It's all right. And so subconsciously, when you're predisposed to this and you've seen everyone else do it, you do the same thing. It's just a matter of psychosomatic uh, phenomenon. It's mind over body. But then she turned to my father and she said, what is your financial situation? And my dad said, well, what does that have to do with anything? And she said, the more money you give to the Lord's work, the more likely it is he will answer your prayers. 
When I let go of something in my hand, I'm talking about your money. God always lets go of something in his hand. Click on that donation button, and when you do, to sow $1,144. The reason why people teach that it's always God's will to heal, and if he doesn't, the problem is them, is because that's a good way to manipulate people. Prosperity theology means money. Money! Come on, to me! Jesus is the banker. Jesus said, lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. We took our little magic religious pencil and put it right in there, and you can't touch it till you get here. You have treasure in heaven? He didn't say you couldn't get it out. Second Peter 2, Peter says it flat out. In their greed, they, meaning false teachers, will exploit you. Let's receive our evening offering this evening and uh, give you a chance to raise your income. He said, we don't give to get something back. Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> the God we worship had no place to rest his head. You think Jesus Christ would have rolled around in a Rolls Royce? Uh, I think he would have. He rode around in a donkey that no man ever rode. <laughs> but the preachers that are preaching in our pulpits are asking for $100 million for an airplane. I really believe that if Jesus was physically on the earth today, he wouldn't be riding a donkey. If I want to believe God for a $65 million plane, you cannot stop me. Most, if not all, of my favorite pastors were false teachers. I cannot stomach a sermon by Joel Osteen or T.D. Jakes now. I have a visceral reaction. Well, Joel, what about their false doctrine? What about your false doctrine? Nobody is correct 100%. And it's funny because I used to just love them. I would listen to Joel Osteen on the way to work, you know, put my earphones in, and it just brightened my day. One of the, the quickest ways to spot a counterfeit gospel is to ask the question, who is this gospel about? Is this gospel, is this good news primarily about you and your personal happiness? I am happy. I am prosperous. You'll hear a lot of phrases like breakthrough, sow a seed to reap a harvest. Your destiny's on the horizon. Uh, God called you to be greater. It's your season. Walk in your purpose. Or it's your best life now. Or is this a message about God? Yet Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. I am blessed. He became a curse. Joe Osteen, in his book, It's Your Time, he says this. He says, when you're in difficult times, it's good to remind God what you've done. God, I've kept my family in church. God, I've gone the extra mile to help others. I've given, I've served, I've been faithful. In your own time of need, you should call in all these seeds you've sown. So it's a softer, kinder, gentler version of salvation by works. It, it kind of turns the table on, on true Christian service, right? Because we would say true Christian service is supposed to be in reaction to what God has done for us, uh, in service to him, out of a desire to glorify him. Whereas it seems that Joel was saying that we got to serve God in order to get more credit from God, in order then to have the ability to force God to serve us or to call in favors, as he says. God has you right now on the edge of a blessing, but there's a catch. It's still the law, not the gospel. The blessing will follow obedience. Well, it's still law. 
do this and you shall live. And you have to obey, and as you obey, God will do it and trigger that prosperity. Or do this and you shall live better. It's not do this and you shall live as in not going to hell. It's do this and you'll have a happier life. People criticize me because I want people to leave church feeling better than they were before. Joel Austin is more about, yeah, we don't need to talk about sin and, you know, hell or the wrath of God or anything like that. You know, let's talk about how we live this Christian life. What I would teach would just be more how to live a, a great life. And therefore, the gospel isn't about a rescue operation from heaven. Rather, it's just kind of trivialized as empowering us to have a better life, to become a better you. Whereas the good news is, God saves me because I can't attain my best life now. God saves me because no matter how hard I work at becoming a better me, I can't pull it off. The real gospel is something more like this. Come to Jesus because you're a sinner. You don't normally talk about sin. That's the first time I've actually heard you spell it out. And because of your sin, the wrath of God abides on you. Now, your fan base is not just Christian, right? I understand you have Muslims, even atheists. How do you explain that? If a pastor can preach in such a way that a Muslim can sit in that audience and hear the sermon and not be offended, then he is not preaching the gospel of Christ and Christ crucified. Our goal is to just help anybody from every any faith to improve their life. What I need is not a makeover. What I need is not more paint on a dead corpse. What I need is a resurrection. I need to be made alive by the Holy Spirit to embrace a gospel that is not about me, but is for me. So after my son was born, my wife had a lot of very serious complications from her genetic disorder. And she went to Birmingham to have a surgery that we had hoped was going to fix all of her problems. As we approached the surgery, Russell started um, going to church. He became interested in organized religion, which was upsetting to me. It was something that I really didn't want to be a part of. Some of my earliest memories of thinking about religion were arguing with other kids in my elementary school who were Christians and trying to poke holes in their faith and, and mocking them. Uh, I stayed an atheist, or I would sometimes say an agnostic, until my 20s. Kind of had the whole American dream situation. You know, everything that I could have wanted in life, I had. And yet, I was crushed with an overwhelming sense of sin. We were both living, ultimately, for ourselves. And I didn't want to suffer at all. I didn't want to feel even, you know, on the pain scale, you know, goes zero to ten. I didn't want to feel a three. You know, I felt that I deserved to feel a zero like I did before. In the surgery, uh, which went well, um, she apparently had a, uh, a bleed that they didn't catch. And so in recovery, they sent her home. And she went home with an internal bleed that was pooling blood in her abdomen. We went back to the hospital a few days later, and they didn't even really want to see her because they didn't think anything was wrong. Um, we went in uh, to see a nurse practitioner. The doctor wasn't going to see me, but I walked in and um, somehow managed to have okay blood pressure. My heart rate was okay. And I started to walk out the door, and then the nurse practitioner said she just felt suddenly like a presence um, stop her and say, look at this girl again. And um, she later said she felt like it was God. She was a Christian, and she believed that, that God wanted her to reexamine me. And at this time, I had actually left the hospital thinking the appointment was over and 
went out to get a sandwich. And a few minutes later, everybody came running. And um, all of a sudden, it was code blue, and they were talking about me. And I was shocked. And I needed five blood transfusions um, just to get me to a stable point. And that still left me severely anemic. Had she gone home from that appointment, she would have fallen asleep in the car as we drove back home from Birmingham, and she'd have been dead when I pulled in the driveway. At that point, my son was seven months old. My daughter was two. And neither one of them would have remembered me. But instead, I know that God saved my life. You know, every minute of this life is a gift, and that's really what it showed both of us. As I sat there and I watched the blood and they said, don't watch, you might, you might pass out, you might get dizzy. But um, I watched the blood going in because I was so joyful and I had so much peace. And I believe that's when our lives started to change. And in the weeks and months afterwards, I needed God to get me through every minute, every second, every hour of every day. We hear the gospel presented this way so often. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Is that true? Well, yes, God does love us and he does have wonderful plans for our lives. God had a wonderful plan for Stephen's life. The wonderful plan that God had for Stephen's life was to be stoned. The wonderful plan that God had for the apostle Peter's life was to be crucified upside down. People think basically that religion is there to boost your ego, make you happy, make you more successful, make life go well. Uh, my brother committed suicide. Uh, my mother, a year and a half later, had her home, which was our childhood home, destroyed in a tornado. All of these things that were happening, instead of making us upset, they were bringing us together as a couple and also as two people growing in, um, in their faith. You know, I started to go to church with Russell. We started to read the Bible together. These things that I would have seen as you know, an angry God or the world lashing out at me uh, and my family, instead I saw just ways that, that God was doing good. And uh, I was eternally <laughs> thankful for things that I, I would have hated before. The wonderful plan that God had for the Apostle Paul's life was to be shipwrecked, stoned, imprisoned, beaten, and ultimately beheaded. I'm strong, I'm healthy, I'm blessed, I'm favored. I am a victor, not a victim. I'm going to live a long, productive, faith-filled life. In terms of biblical Christianity, Christianity is about dying. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What Jesus is saying there is that it's going to be hard, that it's going to be heavy, <laughs> um, and that you may lose your life uh, for what you believe. Christianity has been built and has carried through the generations on the blood of men, not on the wealth. Anybody who says that Jesus came and died to make us happy, healthy, and wealthy is preaching a false gospel. Jesus saved me. I was on the path to hell. He snatched me out of the flames and he saved me from my sins. So how can I just continue to live my life as if this isn't true? So I abandoned my version of the American dream and I said, I will do what I can to take the gospel to the nations. Me and my wife 
sold everything that we owned and we took our savings and we jumped on an airplane with our six-month-old baby to take the gospel to the unreached peoples of the Amazon basin in Peru. We spent four years there, three of those in the jungle, learned the language, tried to adapt to the culture, tried to take the gospel to some of the tribal peoples in that area, and tried to build up the church that uh, already existed in some of these villages. And so what I saw was that on a scale from completely heretical to just generally unhealthy churches are going down to the jungles of Peru where they are trying to duplicate their unhealthy churches in other parts of the world. So what that may look like is a church that goes into a village and throws $250,000 worth of goods and medical treatment at their people, but offer nothing in the way of eternal hope. It's good deeds, not good news. These people that you are sending out of your church or that you are supporting, what do they teach? Are you sending down people who are sowing seeds of false gospel in nations that have no gospel? And that's what I was doing. That's what I was a part of. You fly in a private plane. Yes, I do. You're staying right now in one of the fanciest hotels yes, in New York City. Yes, I am. You wear nice very nice clothing. I had undershirts that were Versace. And I wore a Breitling watch that was worth $10,000. And whatever I wanted, it was mine. So do you not have any misgivings about that? No. And the shame that I have felt over the last few years coming out of it has been immense. Uh, my cars have been everything from BMWs to a Benz, uh, but my favorite car was a black Hummer. It was an H2. I was literally 21 years old. It had TVs in it, a chrome package, big 22-inch rims. My car payment was $1,000 a month just because we could afford it. I'm going to ask many of you tonight to show $1,000 in faith-expecting property. Our home was 10,000 square feet, the one up north. Our second home in Southern California was a $2 million home that overlooked the ocean. This is our, I guess you could say, like, back porch sort of thing. All right, so I have my trusty bucket, and then I have the well here. And this is what we're going to be using to get our drinking and bathing and cleaning water. You know, there's this idea, supposedly, that we preachers are supposed to walk about with sandals and ride bicycles. That's nonsense. I flew on a G4, a G5. Uh, we ate the finest foods, the best restaurants. We stayed in hotels upwards of $20,000 a night. One was in the Middle East, in Dubai, called the Burj Al Arab. And it's the hotel that's shaped like a sail. We were picked up in three white Bentleys and driven there. Uh, every room is a suite. We stayed in the Royal Suite. And there was gold everywhere. And I'll never forget the experience. And this is our shower. Just kind of dump it over your head and bathe and dump it over your head and that's it. I think another difficulty is just living in the jungle. I mean, it's always hot. There's always bugs. I find myself negotiating with the bugs. Bugs, listen, I'll let you bite me twice as much tomorrow if you just don't bite me at all today. Spiders everywhere you turn. I'm not used to that kind of stuff. I'm from the city. Another hotel that sticks out in my mind is called the Grand Resort Lagonisi. It's in Greece, and ironically, it's set on the Aegean Sea. I had my own suite, I had my own pool, and there I stood every day looking out over the Aegean Sea. If you know your Bible at all, Paul sailed the Aegean Sea on many missionary journeys. And so here I am, Word of Faith Prosperity Kid, looking out where Paul was shipwrecked, where he went through uh, literally 
chaos and hell on earth just to get the gospel out to people. And now I'm staying in five-star hotels preaching the same Jesus I thought as Paul. I didn't know that I was being deceived. Of course, when you're being deceived, you don't know it. And I, I, I think that was probably the time in my life where I was the most depressed. My encouragement is never say negative things about yourself. I was taught that there was power in the things that I said to bring things into existence. I am young, I am beautiful, I am attractive. Remember, what follows the I am is going to come looking for you. God's the great I am. Uh, we're the great I'm nots. But we think we're the great I am. We think it's about us. When I read in the Bible where he says, I am, I just smile and say, yes, I am too. Amen. At the heart of the prosperity gospel, the word of faith movement is this doctrine called the little God's doctrine. You don't have a God in you. You are one. You are God's little G. He is big G and you are little G. You're little G God. Little God theology plays off the... Genesis 1, 2, and 3, if you look at creation and the fall, the description of man as being in the image of God, in right fellowship, in communion with God in the garden. Now that's interesting because of everything it produces after its own kind, we now see God producing man. One of the foundational assumptions or doctrinal premises, if you will, of the Word of Faith movement is this idea of trichotomy, that human beings are fundamentally threefold in nature, that they have a soul and a body, but that essentially human beings are spirits. You are a spirit, you have a soul, and you live in, you live in a physical body. And as spirits, they are in the same class or category of being as God. God's reason for creating Adam was his desire to reproduce himself. And like God as a spirit, we can call into existence what we say. We serve a God who calls things that do not exist as if they already existed. We just make positive confessions, and then those positive confessions will then turn into physical reality. So that's how powerful your words are. Your words have created power. Just as God made the world by speaking words of faith, according to these teachers, we can essentially bring into reality or bring into expression what we are hoping for, what we want, because we're the same kind of being as God. I was absolutely beyond broke and pulled out the ATM receipt when they told me that I didn't have enough money to make withdrawal and I rebuked that receipt in the name of Jesus and I proclaimed my victory over Satan and his lies about me being broke. Speak to your checkbook. Say, you checkbook, you've never been so prosperous since I owned you. You're just jammed full of money. Looking back now, it's funny and you kind of have to laugh so you don't cry because of how pathetic it was. Now let's read it and let's make bold confession. As we receive today's offer, we are believing the Lord for jobs and better jobs, places and places. Of course, this is very unbiblical because only God can speak things into existence. So the, the core idea, the, the central aim, is to rid your heart of any sin and of any doubt. And once you do that, you can have complete mastery over the universe. You are God.
For a time period from 2001 to 2006, I lived in uh, the Bahamas, um, laid down roots pretty deep there. Now, while I was there, I had um, some interactions with this ministry uh, under Miles Monroe. My family had been uh, exposed to his teaching on television. People ain't worrying about no blood on no cross. They worrying about how they're going to make it through the day. I'm just going to read for you uh, page 13 of his book, Applying the Kingdom. He says, every human is searching for the simple formula to a successful, fulfilled life. They want to find the one key that unlocks the door to the good life and answers the questions of their heart. Perhaps this is why The Secret became a sudden best-selling book, even though its reign was short-lived. One of the greatest and most dangerous heresies that the early church faced was that of Gnosticism. They were selling Gnosis or secret knowledge. I've been talking about this for years on my show. I just never called it the secret. The secret is the law of attraction. This book promised the final key to life and success. This was the power of Gnosticism in the second century. Secret knowledge or second blessings. If you see it in here, you're going to hold it here. If you'll think bigger, you'll live bigger. You know, dividing the Christian church into haves and have-nots, right? Some are anointed and, and some are not. I was amazed to find when I read this book that it was simply a restatement of all the principles already written in the Bible. So what we declare creates reality. Happiness, health, and wealth. And the same material I and many others have been sharing for years. You're thinking poor. Start thinking rich. In essence, the secret was never a secret. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. That is my religion. If your teaching is being approved by Oprah, that might raise some warning flags. I don't see her advancing, promoting traditional, historic, Christian, Orthodox teaching. But she is a very successful representative of the really what's become the american religion of prosperity what kind of god wants you to be poor and miserable a car for you and for you and for you if only you'll name it and claim it later on after college i met a gal who's now my wife uh, she's beautiful on the inside and the outside. She comes from a very different background than me. She was not necessarily word of faith, prosperity material. And uh, my family, when I told them that I met a nice gal, said, great, we'd love to meet her. Is she spirit-filled? And I said, oh, no, don't do that. Please don't do that. Yes, she's spirit-filled. Because as our beliefs and teachings went, a person is not filled with the Holy Spirit. They're not baptized with the Holy Spirit, and they're probably not even saved unless they speak in tongues as evidence of their conversion. Uh, there was a lot of pain during those days for my wife. There was a lot of pain for me because we were trying to force a belief and a doctrinal system onto her and into her that wasn't biblical. And one day after my wife was just distraught through tears, we turned to 1 Corinthians 12.30, and it about jumped off the page. As Paul says, all don't speak in tongues, do they? And there it was. It's not an essential, and we all don't have to speak in tongues as evidence of salvation.
We all have the Holy Spirit at conversion. There's no second-class citizens in Christ. You don't have the ones that are in first class and the ones that are in economy class. We all have the Holy Spirit. Further study caused the dominoes of other false beliefs to continue to fall. Well, I was raised in a Christian home. I didn't really make God a big priority in my life until I was about 17. That's when I really started having a relationship with God. Then about a year or two after that, I got really involved in charismatic movement. I got introduced to a lot of faith healers through people at my church. And one specifically was uh, Todd White. Todd White is now a member of Gateway Church, pastored by Robert Morris in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. But what Todd White is really known for is going on the street and walking up to people at random and seemingly healing them. And uh, he's very good with people and very uh, seems very loving. Yeah, and I idolized these men and I wanted to be like them. Basically, I wanted to make my lifestyle all about glorifying myself by making me look like some super Christian um, that goes around and heals people all the time. And, and I want to be a big hotshot faith healer guy that was so anointed when I walked into the church. Um, everyone said, oh, look at David. Wow, he's so anointed. But now I realize it's not about me. It's all about God. Give God all the glory. Today we're at a point where a lot of the major word of faith and faith healing players are getting old. People like my uncle Benny Hinn, people like Kenneth Copeland and others, they're getting older. And so what we're seeing is a handing off of the torch and passing of the baton as men like Todd White and others come up in the ranks. And I'm going to say this to you. You need to be putting your money in here. But the straw that broke the camel's back with me was when I saw a video of Todd White aligning himself with Kenneth Copeland doing a fundraiser. And I have the privilege of introducing one of the amazing fathers in the body of Christ. Actually, he's really special to me. And Kenneth Copeland is worth upwards of $700 million. He has a fleet of airplanes, his own airstrip, lives in a compound in Fort Worth, Texas, and is the poster child for Word of Faith theology. He's a, a mentor in my life. He's a spiritual father. I say the hallmark of Kenneth Copeland's teaching is the way he deifies man. You have exactly the same spiritual DNA as Jesus. Glory to God. Hallelujah. You are a twin to the master himself. <laughs> so say I'm sick. Um, why wouldn't I be healed because I have the same spiritual DNA? You've got the very DNA, the divine nature of Abba coursing through your veins. Why wouldn't God heal your blood disease? So I should live over a hundred years or forever. Your spiritual DNA was programmed to keep your body strong for 120 years. And this really comes close to something like what the Mormons do. And I think it's with good reason that some scholars have described Mormonism as the quintessential American religion. It's about being good. It's about being American. And it's about becoming God. That religion is as old as the garden. And Adam is as much like God as you can get. He was not a little like God. He was not almost like God. He was not subordinate to God even. The very first temptation, which led to the very first sin, was this desire to be just like God. 
just the same as Jesus when he came into the earth. He wasn't a lot like God. Adam in the Garden of Eden was God manifested in the flesh. One of the most uh, objectionable elements of Kenneth Copeland's doctrine was this idea that any human being could have done what Jesus Christ did, at least in principle, because Jesus was constitutionally no different than you and me. The Spirit of God spoke to me, and he said, Son, realize this. A twice-born man whipped Satan in his own domain. And I threw my Bible <laughs> up like that. I said, what? He said a born-again man defeated Satan. The firstborn of many brothers defeated him. He said, you are the very image and the very copy of that one. And I said, well, now, you don't mean, you couldn't dare mean that I could have done the same thing. He said, oh, yeah, if you'd known that had the knowledge of the Word of God that he did, you could have done the same thing. Because you reborn man, too. That's the heart of Copeland's teaching. And it's as evil and satanic as any theology that is out there going by the name Christian. I've just for years and years since I've been saved, have just looked at the rock-solid ministry of Kenneth Copeland. I'll agree with that if what he means is it's a rock-solid example of rank heresy. It's not Christianity. So this demotion of God and deification of man is at the heart of the word faith prosperity gospel movement. The prosperity gospel is this ideology that's ironclad. It's ironclad in all these assumptions that's formed like this iron curtain around it. And you gotta break through that before people who adhere to it will give you any kind of hearing. One of them is just fear. My brother, my sister, be careful if you raise your voice against the man of God. Even if that man of God is wicked, sickness will come on you. You speak against them, you would be cursed. That's the way we were taught. And so we grew up with a lot of fear, never to question the theology, the teaching, or even the lifestyle. They assume that these preachers are untouchable. If you touch servants of God, you will be judged severely. That they're the Lord's anointed, and the Bible says, touch not the Lord's anointed. And by touch, they understand that to mean you don't challenge their views. Don't mention people's names on your radio program and your TV program. The Bible is explicit. False teachers must be called out by name. I mean, Paul called out Peter, you know, the top dog. He called them out when he was acting in such a way that was out of line with the gospel. Touch not the anointed. They just take this idea of David not wanting to touch the Lord's anointed Saul. Touch there means kill. It means harm physically. Sometimes I wish God would give me a Holy Ghost machine gun. I'll blow your head off. I don't want to kill them. I don't want to attack them. I'm not wishing any bodily harm to them or anything like that. I'm just telling you how easy is it to go through Scripture and say what Scripture says. The Bereans in Acts 17, they're commended for wanting to make sure the things that Paul is teaching are in the Bible. One, it shows that we love them. We love them enough to pray for them, even though they are, in a very real way, our enemies. We call them out in hopes that they would hear this true gospel and that they would hear this rebuke and that it would break their hearts and that they would repent of their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus. In order to really understand a movement, it helps to have at least a general uh, working knowledge of the origins. The heritage of Word of Faith theology reaches all the way back to a man named E.W. Kenyon, 
in the 1800s. Kenyon was, uh, to put it simply, a charismatic Baptist. He was taught by A.J. Gordon and other evangelical believers in the faith healing doctrine. He's the one that uh, really pioneered the ideas that were picked up by Kenneth Hagin and later Kenneth Copeland in what we call the Word of Faith movement. Your modern prosperity preachers such as Joel Osteen, Joseph Prince, Joyce Meyer, Benny Hinn, they were heavily influenced by Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland mastered his Word of Faith theology and his craft as a big business preacher by listening to the tapes of Kenneth Hagin. Kenneth Hagin, we could call the father of the modern Word of Faith movement, the modern prosperity gospel. Kenneth Hagin claimed that much of what he taught people, he received directly through divine revelation knowledge. And so, for example, Kenneth Hagin uh, made this statement, and I quote, Every man who has been born again is an incarnation, and Christianity is a miracle. The believer is as much an incarnation as was Jesus of Nazareth, end quote. Now this statement that Hagen makes here, he actually plagiarized from E.W. Kenyon. It's something that Kenyon had written in one of his books, and it is quoted without attribution by Kenneth Hagen verbatim in one of his articles. This idea that every human being who believes is an incarnation is simply not a biblical idea. The misunderstanding here is the incarnation is not simply a matter of the Spirit of God dwelling in a man or in a human being. See, Jesus was man until God touched him and put the Spirit of the living God on the inside of him. The incarnation is God himself uniting himself with human nature to become one of us. It is the union of the two natures, the nature of God and the nature of man in one person. One of the most well-known mainstream Word of Faith preachers today is Bill Johnson from Bethel Church. I am getting to love Bill Johnson big time. They launched the band Jesus Culture, and they're really popular, and they sing some really cool-sounding songs. But people might not know on page 29 of his book, When Heaven Invades Earth, Bill Johnson writes in no uncertain terms, he, meaning Jesus, performed his miracles, his signs and wonders, as a man in right relationship with God. And then it says dot, 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 not as God. If he performed his miracles because he was God, then they would be unattainable for us. Therefore, since he did them as a man, I'm responsible to pursue that lifestyle. One of the many aberrations from historical Christianity is their exaggerated view of what's known as kenosis, Jesus emptying himself. Jesus was not born into this world to be God. Kenotic theology taught by Bill Johnson, Todd White, basically is this idea that Christ in the incarnation, that he emptied himself of his deity. He was fully God and fully man, but he had to lay aside all divinity, all of it, every bit of it. He had this is not what the Bible teaches when it says that Christ emptied himself and came and took on the form of man. The ground zero passage on this is Philippians chapter 2. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of it, you can say the nature of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And verse 7 actually makes it clear what, what it means for him to have emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The language of scripture might be confusing because it says he emptied himself, but we're not to think that he changed his nature because he can't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He didn't divest himself of anything. He emptied himself by becoming human. You could say he emptied himself by addition. It was just veiled underneath truly human flesh. In fact, at the Mount of Transfiguration, he pulled back the veil of his flesh and revealed his deity. It was still there, it was still intact. He was God. But he had to lay fully God aside. It's not true that he laid his deity aside, but he laid his divinity aside, humbled himself. However, it doesn't mean that his divine attributes were in full use all the time. He himself said, you know, that he didn't know the time of his own return, but he didn't set his omniscience aside completely either. When it served the Father's purpose, for him to know something through his omniscience, he did. So at the very end of John 2, for example, it says he didn't need anybody to tell him what was in man. He knew what was in man. Usually you'll hear people who hold this doctrine say, therefore, you and I, if we have enough faith, can do the same things Jesus did because he did all his miracles by the power of the Spirit, not by his own inherent divinity. Jesus knew what they were thinking, which means that me as a Christian can know what people are thinking. That's pretty crazy. You better be ready for it because people think some weird stuff. This is a serious confusion for a number of reasons. Number one, if you imagine that the spirit of God is, is some foreign spirit to Christ, then you've got a totally wrong idea of the Trinity. The spirit of God is often called the spirit of Christ. Here is the definition of the Trinity. If you write anything down tonight, write this down. God is one in being and three in person. Now, that is not a contradiction. You see egregious statements about God being three persons within each being of the Trinity and there being nine gods. Each one of them is a triune being by himself. If I can shock you, and maybe I should, there's nine of them. Humans happen to be one being and one person. God is different. God is one being. Yahweh is what we call God. But he's three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. No, Jesus didn't do what he did as God. He did what he did as a man in perfect relationship with the Father. Yes, Jesus was fully imbued with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Father was in him doing the works. But this is the way it's always been eternally. Because as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three persons who are one God, they always do their works together. Colossians chapter 2 explicitly makes this clear in verse 9 when it says of Jesus, In him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. So why is getting the deity of Christ a big deal? Because if we get the deity of Christ wrong, we get the gospel wrong. He didn't say that he was healing people as God. If he had no power to heal physically, um, then he really wouldn't have had the power to save us spiritually either. He is the one mediator between God and men. And in order for him to serve in that role, he has to be fully man and fully God. Only a human can pay the price for human sin, but only God can endure the wrath of God 
And if our faith is in a Jesus who wasn't truly God all the way through the cross, then how could he have been the sinless and acceptable sacrifice who bore our sins on the cross? He can't be. That's why it's heretical. If he's not God for one nanosecond, he isn't the God of the Bible, because the God of the Bible is immutably God. He cannot stop being God for one second. And of course, what they're trying to do is to take Jesus and diminish his deity so that we can exalt humanity to the point where we're supposed to do greater works than Christ did miraculously. That's the whole point. Anyone who thinks they can represent the Father without miracles do not understand the Father. To think that I could adequately display the love of God without power is absolute nonsense. It is absolute insult to the gospel. A lot of faith healers today say that if you don't have signs and wonders accompanying your teaching of the gospel, then you don't have true power. If the preaching of the gospel lacks signs and wonders, it's an empty shell. But scripture says something entirely different people who are healed by Jesus himself, who actually had the miracle of healing come from Jesus, still did not repent and believe. The miracle of the 10 lepers, which is in Luke 17, only one of them returned to praise Jesus and to praise God. I've seen examples of people who claim to be Christians going out in public and encountering people who don't know Jesus. And rather than sharing the gospel with them, they avoid that entirely, and they shoot straight to signs and wonders. And apparently there is an epidemic in this country of people with having one leg just a little bit shorter than the other. In every sense, I would say Todd White is as much a magician as he claims to be a man of God. I would go around and look for people that were like limping with obvious sicknesses. Is there any problems at all physically? Ah, uh, my back isn't the best. And I'd go up to them and ask to pray for them. They tell your leg's shorter, your one leg shorter than the other one, and that throws you back out. So this is the Holy Ghost film from 2014. This is a really great trick, and you're gonna see in a moment here that it is a trick. So what I'll do, regardless of what you believe, I'm gonna pray for you, and Jesus is gonna grow your leg out and heal your back. Charlatans and snake oil salesmen have been doing this trick for decades. It's sleight of hand. So Father, I thank you in Jesus' name. Left leg, I command you, bro, right now. Jesus' name. Look at it. You see it? Look at that. Can you guys see that right there? Yes. It's longer now than the other one. And then and if I was done, if they received it well, which most did, I'd be like, oh, God loves you so much. Have a good day. I'm not like out here to say you need to. No, dude. God loves you, bro. And that's it, man. Semper Fi, man. Now we're going to see Todd White's clip sped up quite a bit and looped back and forth. Now this is where we can see what's really going on here. The leg on our right is supposed to be the short leg, and this is the leg which should be miraculously growing, but it's not. Look at the leg on our left. That's where all the action is. That's what's actually being manipulated. You can see that Todd is actually pivoting or shifting the foot of the so-called long leg so that the heels match. Now, he's doing this very slowly over time, but it's painfully obvious when you speed up the clip. And what he is doing is the most hateful thing you could possibly do for someone. Men like Todd White preach a gospel that is centered on love. The problem is it's not biblical love. Biblical love confronts sin. We are all born sinners. We are all born in need of a Savior. God is alive! If we really understand God's 
love, then we understand that God's love is a holy love. That because God is so loving, he must simultaneously reject and hate evil. Well, when I saw anyone preaching the real gospel, which is salvation through the cross, I thought that was kind of unloving because they talk about sin. Every one of us has broken his laws. My experience has been even those that call themselves Christians, they will oppose you. They reject a gospel presentation that includes calling people to repent. Repent and believe in the gospel. I'm not like out here to say you need to. I'm not out here to say you need to. I think he's choosing not to use the word repent, which is what Christians historically have always talked about. That is the reason why many people will refuse to become a Christian. They don't want to repent. They don't want to give up their sin. They like sinning. This method of evangelism by blessing, it's changing the gospel from you are dead in your sins and this is what you need by God's grace, repentance and faith. It's changing that message to God loves you, he accepts you, here's some free stuff. He will cure you of your ailments, he'll fix your back pain. He prayed for me, my back got healed, prayed for my girlfriend, her, her head got healed, my ankle got healed. He helped to get clothes for my family, and now God told me to get a guitar. God's buying me this guitar, man. He goes, you're doing the gospel, man. Can I shake your hand? Because this is what Jesus would do. We don't live the gospel. We don't do the gospel. We receive it by faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We have to speak to them the gospel. We have to preach the gospel. It's not enough that you just live a godly life before others. If that's all it is, they'll go to hell thinking you're a good person. I thought that if you go and heal someone or give someone money or just tell them, oh, Jesus loves you so much, man. Jesus loves you so much. That the goodness of God would lead them to repentance. God's goodness does lead us to repentance, but sometimes God's goodness doesn't look like what we think it looks like. Sometimes God's goodness is telling us how bad we really are. I love you enough to tell you the truth. So when you come along and say, you're great, you're special, you're amazing. God loves you and you're amazing. God is, you know, crazy about you. God's so impressed and so amazed by you. You're amazing. <laughs> this is the opposite of what people need to hear. When they're at war with God, they don't need to be told how great they are. They need to be told that they are at war with God. To withhold the bad news is to share half the gospel. To share half the gospel is to not share the full gospel. We deserve hell for eternity because of our lawbreaking. And it's only through Christ's death on the cross, burial and resurrection, that he paid that penalty for our sins. The problem is not that the preacher has the wrong method. Jesus said, you can raise someone from the dead and still people will not believe. And that is why we faithfully preach the gospel because we know that as much as some will violently reject it, it is the means that God uses to bring his people to repentance and faith. We never want to withhold any portion of the gospel from people thinking that somehow we can trick them or fool them into the kingdom of God. Some of the questions I had growing up when I was in healing crusades with my uncle or my father was if we have these gifts of healing and we can do this for people, why don't we go to hospitals? It was very overwhelming having to feel that I had to pray for every single person that was sick. And I overthink things. So I would think things like, everyone with glasses needs healing. And then I'd look around and like, 
more than half the population wearing glasses. So I'd be like, God, you really expect me to heal all these people? Like, why can't we go to my school? Why can't we go to my friend's house and heal my friend of cancer in high school? Uh, why can't we do what we say we do? Why do we need music? I want to hear the instruments. I want to hear the strings. One time I saw Bill Johnson ask someone who, who got healing in their eyes. How many of you the sight something was healed with your eye? Put your hand up right now. Okay, you can command dead people to rise up and people to get out of wheelchairs. And why are you still wearing glasses? That doesn't make sense. I've been to 17 different Benny Hinn crusades as part of my research. And on one of these, I was being interviewed uh, for a documentary that was being done on Benny Hinn. And you see me trying to get up on the platform. Well, there was a lady who was on the Benny Hinn staff. She was talking with me. I'm standing there on my crutches. And you see this man come up and whisper in her ear. And the man you see is Henry Hinn, Benny Hinn's brother. Henry is Costi's father. Henry Hinn whispers in her ear, and then this lady tells me immediately, she says, Sir, just step aside and pray for your healing. What was going on there is that they are screening people, and they are keeping the truly sick, the obviously sick, the obviously handicapped people away from the platform. It's hard to sleep at night when there's dying babies whose moms brought them to the crusade services because your uncle could heal them, and they gave their best offering, but they went home sick. In the back on the floor are dozens and dozens and dozens of sick people. I've seen parents with dying children, literally dying children in their arms, some of them hooked up to breathing machines. The only people who are allowed up on Benny Hinn's platform are people who have a malady that cannot be readily seen. It's always diseases or conditions that can be overcome with temporary rush of adrenaline or emotion, psychosomatic healings. You never see anyone who looks like me allowed up on the platform because I can't hide my condition and no matter how excited I may get, if you take my crutches away from me, uh, I'm going down. It's hard to sleep at night when you see wheelchair bound women holding their children and your family promises them health and hope and you can't give it to them, but you take their offering and you go live large off it. That's hard. It's not difficult to stand up for truth. It's hard to live a lie. And we are not ashamed of prosperity, nor will we apologize for prosperity, because it is the promise of our Heavenly Father who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. One of the most painful parts of standing up for truth is the losses that can come relationally. For Muslims, the gospel is often, literally, a call to die. The cost of accepting the gospel could be your family, but it's worth it. One thing I've never sought to do is bring down my family. Uh, this is not my smear campaign against my uncle. My family is the most loving family. They're most kind people. They're affectionate. My dad always told me he was proud of me. My mom always told me she loved me. Uh, my sisters are amazing women. I love my family. But the reality is, I love Jesus more. The gospel divides unbelievers from believers. The Lord Jesus wants unity. Doctrine is what divides. In fact, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who came to divide. He came with a sword to divide mother against daughter, father against son. So often today we hear about the desire, the quest for unity. I believe that the Catholic Church and the Christian Church we're going to come together 
And so what the Catholic Church has done is they've gone after soft targets in the Protestant evangelical world. We have far more in common than what divides us. If you love Jesus, we're on the same team. And so we have people suppressing doctrinal truth for the sake of unity. We may not agree, you know, 100% on doctrine and theology, but you know what, the, the church, the Catholic church, our church, it's open for everybody, so I like his tone. Todos somos hijos de Dios. Not pushing people away, but I believe God's big, and his mercy is very wide. The gospel is the only thing that has the power to save. If we get the gospel wrong, we get Christianity wrong. Catholics, evangelicals, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Because you're breaking the spirit of division. And so as soon as you say that a person can be saved by their works or by adding anything else to it, you've now diminished the biblical gospel. And so by diminishing it, you have now nullified it. There is no gospel. There's no good news. If you have to go and earn your way to heaven. Somebody give me that Catholic priest over here. And so, without having a core agreement of what the gospel is, we can't unify around that. We can't do ministry if there's a different understanding of the most core tenet of our faith. To just bring the unity of the Catholic and the Christian together. There is no unity if there's no gospel. And so, standing for truth comes at a cost, and sometimes that's going to mean broken relationships. Because I can't stand for deceit, and I can't just turn a blind eye to what is hurting many people. Bad theology hurts people. If you're sick, tell someone, I'm healthy. If you know someone in the Word of Faith movement, you might notice that if they get sick, they deny that they're sick. Just keep saying that I'll never have the flu. I'll never have the flu. I had a relative who many years ago delayed going to the doctor for condition that he had that was quite obvious because it was right on his head and everybody could see it and he was hoping that he would be healed and wouldn't need to go to the doctor. Jesus himself gave us the flu shot. Eventually he gave in and went to the doctor but it was too late and he died as a result. We've already had our shot. He bore our sicknesses and carried our diseases. One time I had mercury poisoning and I thought listen if you have faith in Jesus you can't go to the doctor. If you go to the doctor, you're putting your faith in the doctor, not in Jesus. And so I had mercury poisoning, and I refused to go to the doctor. And I was laying in the bathtub in my own soup on the verge of dying when my mom came and pulled me out and made me go to the emergency room. So I was disillusioned by the Word of Faith doctrine when I fell into financial ruin after quitting my job because my pastor prophesied that someone in the church that day needed to quit their job and he was there to tell us that God told him to tell us that it was time for us to quit. And so I took that to be confirmation for me and I quit my job the next day. <laughs> I remember talking with my wife in tears, asking her, what am I doing wrong? Why can't I seem to get this doubt out of my heart? Why can't I conjure up this faith within myself to be able to rebuke Satan and rebuke the sickness and rebuke the, the poverty? And I fell into financial ruin shortly thereafter, probably within two months, and was highly upset with God. When you name it and you claim it and it still doesn't happen, what am I doing wrong, God? 
speaking things into existence wasn't working, the quote-unquote favor I was supposed to have under that doctrine. If I follow Jesus, favor follows me. It just wasn't working. I was losing everything, like, by the day. The preacher's not to be blamed. And obviously God and the Bible aren't to be blamed, so who's left to be blamed? You are. You're the one. You don't have enough faith. You got too much sin. You're a failure. That hurts people. I'm super grateful that by the grace of God, I came out of that because I could see how blind I was and how I was going down the wrong path. So I, I feel compelled to warn as many people as possible. Thank you so much for uh, your love and your support. Over the past week, I announced eight days ago that um, I have received this diagnosis. Emil Koresh and I were very close friends. Uh, we knew each other for several years. We would see each other at conferences, and we were part of a larger group of Christian apologists that would get together and talk about the defense of the faith and talk about theology, and we developed a very good friendship. Uh, just a few weeks or so after the last time that I was with Nabil uh, personally, we found out that he had been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. The diagnosis was uh, stage four stomach cancer. It was considered inoperable. It was also considered certainly fatal. The statistics say that 4% of people with this diagnosis survive. I realized very quickly that if I were going to live, I would need more or less a miracle. One of the things that the Word of Faith movement is against is suffering, and God's will is anything but suffering. I refuse to create a theology that allows for sickness. It's always God's will to heal everybody. So the question I want to answer right now then is, is it God's will for everyone to be healed? This provides, beyond my dear love for Nabil and, and hope for him personally, an interesting case study in does this actually work? And if it doesn't, why doesn't it work? First of all, we have to affirm the truth that God can and does heal people in response to prayers. At the same time, it is impossible for Christians to be formed into the image of Christ without undergoing some kind of suffering. I began to get sicker, so I went in for some blood work and my doctor called and said he thought it might be cancer. Um, but they suggested that it, it could be a form of T-cell lymphoma or leukemia. I know when I was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer uh, in 2009, there were these two camps that were the loudest. And to be honest with you, neither was really comforting. The first camp was kind of that, man, if you just have faith and believe that God will heal you, he will heal you. And, and man, if you, if you don't, you know, you need to put people around you that have faith and can encourage that faith in you. And then, and I just thought, man, how exhausting to put all of that on me. And then there was this other kind of nonchalant, well, I'm just praying God's will for your life and, and, and then I'm going, whoa, but doesn't the word of God tell you in James to pray that I might be healed as, as I pray that I might be healed? I had a brain tumor. Uh, it was in my frontal sinus uh, and it was pushing into my frontal lobe. I was having vision problems and things like that. And so we moved quickly to a specialist to have that taken out. And they ended up having to use both of my nostrils and resection part of my skull, but they were able to get it out that way. It's not wrong to desire miracles. It's not wrong to desire miraculous deliverance from sickness. And I believe those things still happen today. The problem comes when you believe that those things are normative 
and that every Christian should expect that to happen. And if it doesn't happen, it's a lack of faith on the part of the believer. That's unbiblical. Jesus did have compassion for people. He was moved with love and empathy to heal people. But that healing, in Jesus' own words, was intended to glorify God. And when you get to the end of John, in chapter 20, he very explicitly states the purpose of his gospel, which is that so you may believe. In the book of Mark is uh, a good place to start. In Mark uh, 1, he's at the home of Simon and Andrew, and Simon's mother-in-law has a fever. And so he, of course, heals her. And that evening, um, the whole city was gathered at the door. And you know what? He healed a lot of people. Um, and then he got up early the next morning and went to a desolate place to just like have a quiet time with the father after all of that. And then he comes back and it's like everyone's gearing up again and lining up again. Hey, where's that guy who healed everybody? Everyone is looking for you, he said to them. Let us go somewhere else in the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. For that is what I came for. And so he leaves and, and he doesn't heal all of those people. And that doesn't mean that he's evil or wrong or mean or terrible. It's, it's that he came to bring the word and to help people know to repent and believe because that's the most important thing. It wasn't long before I was pastoring at a church in California and the pastor had me preach. It was my first time preaching and he tells me I'm preaching out of John 5. It's my turn. That's the way the rotation worked. John chapter 5, the healing at the pool of Bethesda. And there was something that stuck out in that passage that I read in a commentary. And it said, the cruelest lie of faith healers today, that if you just have enough faith, Jesus will heal you. And I thought, what just happened? In that passage in John 5, Jesus healed a man who didn't even know who he was, let alone have enough faith. Jesus healed him instantly, which I never saw growing up. And he healed the man out of a crowd of sick people. And so that was the exact opposite of what I grew up with. The faith healing circles, first of all, faith is everything. Faith is so important to miracles. And now this Bible passage is showing that Jesus healed the guy who didn't even know who he was. You don't need to have enough faith. God is sovereign in healing. And there was that word again that I remembered back from college. It is not great faith that we need, but small faith in a great God. This was my conversion experience. I wanted nothing to do with what I used to teach, used to believe, used to even think. I only wanted to know what the Bible says. And so I completely turned from my sin. I repented for all of my false Christianity. Uh, for all the things I'd ever done wrong to other people, for the way that I had abused my Christianity, and uh, to be honest, brought reproach on the name of Christ. You can't turn Jesus or his healing ministry into a formula, but that's exactly what false faith healers are doing today. Not everything that comes at us is God's will. The sovereignty of God is one of the bedrock teachings of Protestant theology. There are those who've wavered from the position. There's a difference from being in charge and being in control. When people say that God's not in control, what they always appeal to is their own experience and their own feelings about what they would do if they were God. Would you do this to your own kids? I wouldn't let my kids be sick. I wouldn't let my kids suffer. 
trust me, I will not strike any one of them with pain to teach them some lesson. Scripture says that we make the mistake of thinking God was like us. And the problem is that Scripture says God is sovereign. Perhaps the best way to understand God's sovereignty over evil is to look at the cross. In Acts 2.23, we're told that Christ was crucified by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. He planned it. He decreed it. But that same verse goes on to say that Christ was crucified by the hands of wicked men. Were they responsible? Were they guilty? Yes, absolutely. Did God decree it? Was it part of his plan? Yes. But he's not responsible for the evil. He gets the credit for the goodness and glory that came out of that evil act. And that's how God works sovereignly, even in the midst of evil. He overrules it for his own glory. God ordains and wills all things for our good. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, for example, it affirms that God has sovereignly decreed whatsoever comes to pass. And that includes ordaining suffering and calamity and disease and death. Any definition of God's sovereignty that allows for evil to exist as a part of his will and purpose is an immoral definition of sovereignty. And you have to have a fairly strong tolerance for mystery to find comfort in that. In Isaiah 46, he says, I am God, there's no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, which means he declared what the end of all things would be before the beginning of time. And uh, he says, and I will do all my pleasure, meaning nothing that God has ever planned or proposed or willed will ever be thwarted. And he does not discipline us as his children by causing sickness to touch us. That's not in the Bible. But I think of Job, for example. Job was marked out to suffer by the sovereign will of God. Not because there was anything wrong in his life, but because there was everything right about his life. That's why he suffered. With Ehlers-Danlos, a lot of people have a lot of severe, severe pain and joint dislocations. So started having problems there. God was the one who said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? But there's none like him. I was withdrawing from the pain medications because I forget to take them because I was on too much. Eventually ended up on, on suicide watch. And during that time is when I really told God, okay, look, I don't care what you have to do. You can humble me. You can take my life and turn it into whatever you need it to be. But, but I need you in control. God's in control. The Bible doesn't teach that. One of the hallmarks of uh, prosperity doctrine is the notion that Satan is sovereign. We think that Satan needs God's permission to attack us. He doesn't need permission. He's a jerk. Did God need to give him that authority or did Satan already have it? It was the sovereign initiative of God that introduced Job into this time of extraordinary suffering in which 10 children were killed in a day. You know, Job's wife says, curse God and die. But Job has an answer that is very <laughs> encouraging. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not accept evil? And Job humbly responds by saying the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Today someone would say to Job, Job, you just didn't have enough faith. No, it was his faith that put him into this suffering. God's not sending the trial your way to try you. The devil's a jerk. Jesus told Peter, 
Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but Jesus said, I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. You know, if you were Peter, you'd be saying, Lord, you told him no, right? But that's not the case. The Lord told him, yes, Peter was sifted like wheat. Christ's prayer was answered. His faith didn't fail. I found out that I also had um, POTS, which is uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, basically meaning every time I stood up, my heart would race and I would sometimes pass out. But it's what's been causing me to have low oxygen. Um, I faint a lot. I have low blood pressure because of it. I no longer sweat. Uh, Philippians 1.29 in the New Testament says, it's been appointed unto us not only to suffer and to be persecuted, but to believe. Those are inseparably bound together. And then by August, um, I developed um, a really bad tremor. Yeah, and it turned out I had severe spinal cord impingement in my neck. Four of my discs were pressing on my spinal cord. Um, so I had to have a, a something called an anterior cervical disc fusion. And then in um, April, I stopped being able to swallow. Um, and I was given um, a tube that went up through my nose and into my stomach to feed me. I had that for about a month, but I wasn't able to gain any weight um, because it turns out that not only my, is my esophagus affected, but um, my stomach is also not working very well. Um, so we had to bypass my stomach, um, and now I'm fed directly um, into my intestines so that bypasses my esophagus and my stomach completely. God has purposes in our suffering to humble us, to conform us into the image of Christ, to wean us off of the world, uh, to purify us, to help us identify with other people who are suffering. God does not use disease to chasten us. What weak theologies of suffering and not talking about suffering has done is it's really exposed that most times we're not really after intimacy with God, but something else. Send prosperity now in Jesus' name. And we're hoping God will give us that something else. You know, even though I don't know all the answers, even though I don't know if I'll be able to eat again, the difference is that I'm not looking for answers. I don't need to know the answer to that question. I'm not angry with God anymore because I don't think that he owes me anything. I feel like he's given me a wonderful life and I'm not even owed that. And through all of the suffering that I've had, he's given me such comfort, such peace, such joy that my life is a thousand times better than it was before. If I could pick to go back to that life before, there's no way, I don't even wanna go near that other life. I don't want anything to do with it because the life I was living before was so empty compared to the life that I have now. Now, when I wake up every day, I need God. I need him to get through the day. And through all of that, my life has gotten better and not worse. Even though to somebody maybe on the outside, it, it looks worse, but it's not. I have so much more happiness now than I ever did before. People often ponder the question, why does God let bad things happen to good people? The truth is, that's only happened once, and that was Christ who voluntarily gave his life on the cross so that the greatest evil that ever occurred was used by God to bring about the greatest good I can think of, and that is the redemption of sinners for his glory. One of my favorite attributes of God is, is God's patience, and it means 
God doesn't give you what you immediately deserve. What you deserve right now at this very moment is to be killed and to be in hell for all of eternity, suffering his wrath because of the way you rebel against the God who made you. So any good thing that ever happens to us is a kindness, a grace from God that is meant to lead us to repentance. In fact, that's the real difficult question. Why do good things happen to bad people? Now here is somebody, in case of Nabil Qureshi, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people prayed for him. He had uh, a young wife and child. Faith healers pronounced that they were confident that God was going to heal him. He had everything to live for. He trusted in God intensely, and yet he was not healed. Uh, not the best news. The doctors have pretty much given up on treating me. Um, they think my body is in its final stages of life. I certainly think that at the end, uh, he was taking a very good attitude toward the whole matter and was confident in God's love for him, regardless of what occurred. Lord, we know you are able. Please heal. Please come through. But if it shouldn't be your will, your sovereign will at the end of the day, then I trust you. And I love you anyway. God's purpose in redemption, ultimately, is that we become perfect in body and soul, that we're going to be a sinless and immortal and glorious creatures who are not going to be suffering anymore from pain, illness, and certainly not death. But that's not now. Right now we live in an awkward in-between time in which we've been redeemed from our sins through faith in Jesus Christ. We have the assurance of that full salvation, that full redemption of our body in the resurrection to come. If I have to live the rest of my life with cerebral palsy, that's fine. I've got all of eternity to live without it. Uh, please pray um, that my daughter would be okay, my wife would be okay. Um, please pray for my family, um, my, my mother, my father, my sister. Nabil is not with us anymore. I believe that if he were, he would want us to learn from what had happened. He would want us to reflect. He would want us to go back to the New Testament. He'd want us to read it more carefully. He'd want us to understand better what the Bible teaches about faith and healing. I want to pray with faith that God would heal me and heal others and expect him to do so all the while while holding open hands, knowing that the will of the Lord will be done. You know, I, I kind of base that on the fiery furnace. You know, Nebuchadnezzar going, we're going to throw you in the flames. And you remember the response? The response was, uh, our God can save us. He will save us. And even if he doesn't, I mean, I'm telling you, that passage for me, 18 months of chemo, high, high dose radiation, to think he can, he will. And even if he doesn't, He's still God. I think it's okay for us to still want to be healed and to still ask to be healed. I just think that we have to be careful not to let it be our priority. Above everything, what we need is spiritual healing. We need atonement for our sin, healing in the soul. In our pursuit of all that this world has to offer, our hands are so full that we have no room now for the gospel. Maybe the bottom line is this. Is Christianity... Jesus plus. And so perhaps this is an opportunity for us to get rid, get rid of everything that's covering up the gospel.
and to capture again the gospel in all of its purity and beauty. There could not be a more solemn charge than this to preachers of the word of God. Preach the word. If there's some part of the Bible that you don't understand how it connects to the gospel, that's a part of the Bible you're not ready to preach yet. Oh, how I pray that America would be purged of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, and that the Christian church would be marked by suffering for Christ. We're to suffer well, to serve faithfully, and to sacrifice for the gospel. But if Christianity is just Jesus, uh, then we need to, to learn to be content in every circumstance. I'm not any better physically, but I am so much happier because I have Jesus and he's right here. Because the gospel is not Jesus plus anything. The gospel is just plain Jesus. I risk leading so many other souls down the same path. And so because of that, I want to tell as many people as I can, not only how false it is, but what the truth is. Every sin ever committed by every person who has ever lived will be punished. That is required by divine holiness and divine righteousness and divine justice. It will either be punished everlastingly in the life of the sinner, or that punishment will be borne by Christ. His death is sufficient to pay for all your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ. Abandon all hope in your good works. Abandon all hope in your, your religiosity and trust in the person and work of Christ alone. I think now, as I consider all the Christians I know and their hesitations to share the gospel, I think it has to do with a lot of factors. A lot of it's just fear of how others might receive us, how others might reject us. But I still think that's horridly unchristian because the Bible tells us that we've not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love. I mean, what are we afraid of? If someone rejects us, they're not really rejecting us. They're rejecting the gospel. It's a result of not seeing death all around us. If we saw death more frequently, we would be much more quick to tell people, hey, this death is real, and there's something we need to wrestle with before we get there, before it's too late.